and you're listening to the Abide Podcast. To find out more about Abide, go to AbideChurchFL.com and enjoy today's message. As a ministry called Burning Ones. And I would encourage you to look them up. They are the real deal. Like, there are a few people that carry the message of intercession. They carry the message of prayer and fasting like this ministry. So when I say to you, like, when Alan Hood was, wasn't going to make it, I told my wife, we're not about trying to just bring a speaker that brings people. It needs to be the right voice. Because we believe we're in a pivotal moment in this time and what God is doing. So it has to be the right voice and the right moment. So here's what I know. God had this moment set apart in time for Michael Dow to deposit into us. He rearranged his whole schedule to be here with us tonight. He's a friend and a brother of the house. So can we honor him as he comes tonight? Is anybody excited to be here? Uh, I just have a real sense. Um, and like there's, there's hunger in the room. Uh, you can tell when it's present. You can tell when it's not. Um, hunger is one of the currencies of the kingdom. Uh, it makes transactions possible. Right? Jesus said where, where there's no honor, he was limited in what he was able to do. Right? There was a recognition that, that hunger and honor, uh, it's all perception. Right? He said you receive a good man in the name of a good man. You receive a prophet in the name of a prophet. Uh, so sometimes we, we lack honor because we lack perception. We lack discernment. Right? God has provided for us. There, there's provision in people, but we don't have the perspective to see the person that God has made to be our provision. And so we don't honor, and so we stay desperate in crying out for things that God has already made accessible to us. Uh, but in a lot of times, he, he wraps it up in a container that offends us, or it's something that we don't prefer, or it's somebody who doesn't dress the way I want to, or somebody who doesn't have the same preferences that I have, or Lord forbid, they have a different voting preference than me. And, um, and so because we don't have discernment, um, we don't have access to things that God has provided for. Because there's provision in God's people. Um, a lot of times we cry out for something and God answers by sending us someone. And, and there's real hunger here. Um, and the reason that I say that is because it makes transactions possible. Where there's hunger, real, real hunger, not, not just superficial external language based stuff. But when there's like real deep desire for God. Like when you've rallied around in hunger for Jesus. Um, at times, the Lord will use you beyond even what you believe is possible. Because even at times, in spite of the weakness or the brokenness of the vessel, he loves his people. And so he will press through you in order to bless those that have rallied or gathered around you. Uh, and so there are times where, where we have access to things that we might not have known were accessible to us, but it's because of the hunger that's in the room that God is longing to respond to. Right? Those who hunger and thirst, they are the ones that shall be filled. Um, and so there's real hunger here tonight. And I would just encourage you, uh, maybe you came with, with a little bit of hunger, 
Maybe you came with what you consider to be extraordinary hunger. Whatever measure of flame right now you may feel is, is burning or being kindled or maybe smoldered in your heart. Maybe you just felt like you came with a little bit of dust and some ash. Right? Like, man, I'm holding on to like a little wisp of smoke. I'm saying like I don't have a lot left. Like, man, being present was a victory for me. Like, I made it. Right? Like, I'm here. If you knew what I went through just to be here, then you would praise God with me. Uh, because there was a lot of other options. Right? But, but so I would just consider tonight that as we get started, um, whatever the degree of hunger that is right now in your heart, if you're not as hungry as you feel like you could be or should be, just be honest with the Lord. Just say, I'm not hungry. And I know it, and you know it. But touch my heart. And I get it like no man comes to the Father unless the Spirit begins to draw. So if you would initiate the drawing, and if you would give me grace to respond, like if you would make me hungry, I need hunger. If the gift of hunger would come upon me, I would respond to it. I wouldn't dismiss it. I wouldn't look away. I wouldn't be preoccupied. Um, so tonight I would just encourage you, all things are possible. Because <laughs> where he is, he's going to be himself. So deliverance tonight is possible. Healing tonight is possible. Miracles tonight are possible. Provision tonight is possible. Everything is accessible in him. If you get him, you get it all. So let's just believe tonight, even as Pastor Gio started with. Let's really lean in. Right? We're not leaning in on a guest, even though I'm really glad to be here. Uh, we're not leaning in on a guest. We're leaning in on Jesus. Because if we get him, then we get it all tonight. And I believe that all things are possible and that he can transform any life in the room. Right? So if you're hungry tonight, I just stay sitting down, but just raise your hands with me. If you're hungry tonight. Lord, all over the room, I'm asking you stir every heart right now. Stir every heart right now. Stir every heart right now, like a prophetic spiritual defibrillator. Some of y'all are like, what is he talking about? Charge their hearts tonight and bring them back to life, Lord. Revive them. Awaken them. I pray for an electrifying infusion of dynamic Holy Ghost power surging and pumping and pulsating through our veins, Lord. We want to know you. We want to know you for ourselves. Baptize me tonight in the deep end of intimacy, the intimate awareness and the knowledge of God. Let it be mine. Let it be mine. I'm grateful for what other people know, but let it be mine. Dig me a well tonight. Let me crack oil tonight. Let me find you for myself tonight. I want to know you may your spirit overwhelm me lord awaken every heart right now like a cool breeze awake 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 like a cool wind on a hot summer day parched and thirst awake 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 thank you lord thank you lord for the gift of faith in the room. Thank you, Lord, for grace to see you, to lean in your direction, to come running into the revelation of Jesus. For the name of the Lord is a strong tower, and those who run into it are safe. 
Lord, give grace. Give grace. Lord, I thank you tonight for tears. <laughs> A lot of times we can tell what's happening in your heart by what's happening on your face. I pray, Lord, that those of us who have been hardened by life, who've been hardened by the circumstantial evidence that life presents, been hardened by seasons of warfare and the onslaught of the wicked one against us in a variety of ways and our attempt to reconcile your goodness into seasons that didn't feel good. Lord, soften hearts in the room that have become hardened and they hide behind fake smiles. Soften hearts tonight that are walking through pain but when they enter into a room like this, they come with pretense and they pretend. Soften hearts tonight. And, and Lord, I pray, not just in a general sense, but eyes that have been dry. I'm asking you for tears. Where we would see you and weep at the consideration of your goodness. Where we would overwhelmed by your nearness and the expression or the demonstration of that would begin to drip forth from our eyes. Lord, let the softening on the inside saturate our face with tears. We want to weep again. We want to feel again. Some of us have been afraid of feeling because life hasn't felt good. Things haven't felt the way we wanted them to, and so we shut ourselves in, and we don't feel. Lord, give grace to feel. Give grace to weep. Soften our hearts, and let it come out of our face. We need you, Jesus. We need you, Jesus. We need you, Jesus.
right. I feel we have some work to do in the Word. Um, does anybody love the Word? You can't love Jesus without loving the Word. Um, so if you brought a Bible tonight, in whatever uh, way you may have that, it's on a device or actual pages, uh, open up with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 1. As you do that, uh, I want to honor your pastors and the leaders and the team here. We really love these guys. Um, Geo and Destiny are amazing. Uh, the rest of the team here, uh, there's so many of you that like our hearts really feel knit with and, and drawn to, and, and it really feels like family, right? You, you can say that. Lip service is one thing. But it really feels like family. And that's why when Gio called me this week, I said, bro, I'm going to do whatever I can. Let me call you back in a minute. Because <laughs> uh, I was really honored. One of the things we talked about is, man, in a moment of crisis, who you think of matters. <laughs> um, so we really love these guys. We honor these guys. Uh, we celebrate them. We're in Orlando. There's some brothers that came with us from our church family in Orlando that we're laying our life down with in a similar way um, in our section of the harvest field, bleeding out on behalf of God's purposes in this hour of history. Uh, we want to see the Lord build his house. We want to see him possess a people. We want to see him shake a city. Uh, we want to see him shake our whole region. We want to see the linking of laborers and lovers for the sake of kingdom advancement uh, actually become a real thing. Uh, and people put down their egos and logos and all their preferences and all their brands and platforms and really come together for the sake of what God is doing because we only get one time in life to steward our effort. Um, and so we really love these guys, and it's a joy for us to be here tonight. For real, I, I say that. Um, to, tonight I, I want to consider a passage that might be a little familiar to you, and I'm okay with that. Uh, but I, I want to possibly pull out some unfamiliar perspective on a passage that in most cases just gets trampled on for the sake of charismania. Right? Immediately when I say Acts chapter 1, if you've studied the scriptures or and if you're a teacher slash preacher in the room, you automatically come to assumptions as if to assume you would understand the direction or the trajectory of what it is that we're going to do tonight. Oh, Acts chapter 1. Oh, I, oh okay, I get it. All right? And so I can kind of gather myself like, oh, I, I know what this is going to be about. A Acts chapter 1, if anything, is the beginning of 25% of the book of Acts that I believe is crucial to understand the rest of the journey through Acts. Acts is 28 chapters. We're going to survey the first seven chapters tonight. We're going to begin in chapter 1. Because tonight, more than anything, I'd like to consider the subject matter, divine desire. Because I do believe that there's something that God wants. I believe there's something that he's after. I believe that it's clearly communicated in Acts chapter 1. And the reason that I could say that so confidently is because we have Jesus communicating in Acts chapter 1. And we can debate a bunch of things. We can talk Paul, Peter, James, John. We, we, we can enter into certain levels of intellectual or theological debate. But when the letters are read, we're going to let the, redder, the, led, the red letters say what the red letters are saying. Right? And this is Jesus talking in Acts chapter 1. And Luke does an amazing job to set the scene. 
He says, Jesus is alive from the dead. He's conquered death. My man is back. He's back. Like, yo, it was looking hopeless for a couple of days. I didn't really know what we were going to do. Like, bro, it got dark. Like, we thought you were really gone. You're back. He's raised from the dead. He's conquered death. He's alive. He is the firstborn from the dead. So that he can have preeminence in every single thing. He is the first fruits. For unless a seed gets sown into the soil and dies, it will not be able to multiply or reproduce a harvest. And he's back in Acts chapter 1. And he's with them for a period of 40 days. And it says that he gives them many convincing proofs. Who needed proof? He's alive from the dead. They watched him. Publicly humiliated and executed. They watched him beaten beyond human comprehension to the point where he was unrecognizable to even be a man. They watched him as he hung and died in the middle of the afternoon being mocked, being criticized, being spit on, being ridiculed and left for dead before people and powers. They saw him and he's back. And he spent 40 days with them. And over these 40 days, it says that he was teaching them about the kingdom. And after 40 days of teaching, this is a conference where Jesus is the only speaker. 40 days of face-to-face with Jesus after being raised from the dead. After 40 days of kingdom teaching, it says that they have questions. And they want to know, is this the time, the season, the hour We believe that you are who you say you are. And we understand that there are particular things that are going to mark the end of the age. We know that when God comes, that great and terrible day of the Lord, we believe that God is going to come. That there will be a time when he will come and abide in the midst of his people forever and ever and ever. We know this. And we know that certain things will mark that season or the end of the age. We know according to the ancient mind, that God is going to raise the dead. Okay, check that box. You're back. And we know that God is going to pour out his spirit, the fulfillment of Joel 2. And we know that God is going to vindicate us from all of our enemies. Is this the time when you are going to set up your throne and deal with all of our adversaries and enemies and the rebels that surround us, particularly the Romans, because they're the heaviest and the hottest on us right now. They're the ones that we feel the most. And Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times or seasons. John came baptizing with water, but soon you will be baptized with the Holy Ghost. This is verse 5 of Acts chapter 1. And they're like, okay, yeah, 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 we get that. But maybe you don't understand, like, we're under a lot of pressure right now. You know what I'm saying? Like, life doesn't necessarily look the way that we want it to look or the way that we expected having you being who you are and all of what we anticipated as to what that would mean. So, like, we're we're expecting for this to look like a little more than that. And Jesus is like, this is what I'm looking for. In that day when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you're going to receive real power. But power is coming with a purpose. Power is coming with an agenda. There's something that power is longing to accomplish. 
in that day when the Holy Ghost comes upon you, yes, you're going to receive power, but that power is going to be the production of what it is that I desire. I'm sending power from on high so that it can accomplish the agenda that I have. I'm sending power from heaven by my own spirit so that when it comes on you, it can actually make you what it is that I want. What does this mean? This means that power is not coming to fulfill your agenda. This means that the Holy Ghost is not coming to simply be a servant for all of your desires. This means that you don't have the Holy Ghost so that you can be famous. You don't have the Holy Ghost so that you can be rich. You don't have the Holy Ghost just for new business strategies so you can establish a worldly empire. You don't have the Spirit. The Spirit is supposed to have you. Because the Spirit has an agenda. And this agenda, Jesus is releasing it. He's revealing what it is that he's actually after and what the agenda of the Spirit is longing to see accomplished. He says, there's something that I want to fulfill. He's like, I know you have a lot of worldly concerns. I know that you're under a lot of duress. I know that there's pressure from every side. I know that there's enemies that right now you don't like. I get it. There's tyrannical government structures and leaders of society that are not in favor for you. But there's something that I'm looking for. And he says, I'm going to send you power. And when the spirit comes on you, it's going to make you something that I am going to call a witness. The divine desire is a people that are witnesses. There's a lot of conversation that we can enter into over evidences and implications of Acts chapter 1. Right? There's a, you, you can go round and round about evidences and implications and all of that. But there is something that is undeniable and irrefutable in the text. And it's that Jesus said there was something that his heart was burning for. That he wanted it. That he was sending power in order to see it established. That he was releasing divine life in order to see his agenda accomplished. And he called it witnesses. Witnesses in legal terms are people that can come and provide evidence. Witnesses in a legal arena, in a courtroom setting, are those that are called in to contribute. They're there to make a contribution. They are those who were at the scene of an experience. They're those who have heard something or seen something. And they've come to testify. They've come to provide evidence. They've come to make a contribution towards a case or a legal examination. And Jesus said, I'm sending power because power is going to produce a people. And these people are what I am going to desire and they are called witnesses. Jesus wants witnesses. He wants people in this hour that will receive his power to be a living demonstration. They're going to provide evidence to the examination of the world. They are going to make a contribution that is going to be irrefutable. And the reason that it's going to be irrefutable is because it's not going to be conditional. It's going to be transformational due to the amount or the degree or the measure of transformation that we experience, we will provide evidence to the world around us of God's power and his desires. And God says, those that testify to the world of my power and my desires, I call them witnesses. And Jesus said, I'm sending the spirit because what I'm after is witnesses. 
And he says, these witnesses, I'm going to scatter them and plant them. And he mentions Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even unto the remotest parts of the earth. Because there is a testimony that must be given throughout all creation to all peoples before the end can come. This is Matthew 24, 14. Preach the gospel of the kingdom as a testimony to all creation or to all peoples, every people group throughout the nations and the territories of the world. There is a kingdom witness, a kingdom testimony, a evidence of the power and the desire of the gospel that must be presented or must be announced. This testimony, this evidence must be given to all people before the end can come. Because Jesus understands the implications of his return. And when the end comes, there will be no more time. That's not to offend anyone's intelligence. At the end of time, there will be no more time. Which means there will be no more time to get right. There will be no more time to repent. There will be no more time to stop the wrestling in your heart. Right? 1 John 2, 16, at the end of 1 John 2, John says, There will be some that at his appearing shrink back from him in shame. Peter says, beloved, don't think that God is disinterested. Don't think that he's distant. Don't think that he's cold and calloused and that he's far removed. Because your idea of who he should be and what he should be doing isn't necessarily lining up with what it is that you see unfolding throughout the nations of the world. He says, know this. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord. Because he's patient. And he's patient because he has a desire. And his desire is that all men would come to repentance. Because the implications of the return of his son, when his son is gloriously released to come riding upon the cloud, is that there will be no more time when the end of time appears. And when the son of man is revealed. And Jesus says, I want witnesses that I can scatter throughout the nations of the world. Witnesses that I can plant their lives in the soil of every city, every region, every nation. Because there's a testimony that must come to all peoples. And this testimony of the gospel, preach the gospel of the kingdom as a testimony. This glorious testimony is the actual product of what the power of the spirit is able to produce by way of real transformation. It's a people that are in Christ. It's a people that are a new creation. It's a family of new creatures. It's a Romans 6 new version of humanity. This new version of humanity. This family of new creatures. This new creation. This people are a witness. These people are a testimony. These people are the evidence of the gospel. And they are a sign and they are a wonder. And they are very provoking when planted. In John 17, Jesus said, I have to have them. These people. On the eve of his death, I have to have them. John 17, 24. The whole chapter is Jesus praying. And he's talking about this people. This people dominates the theme of the prayer in John 17. I've got to have them. He's praying for them. 
Don't take them out of the world, but send them. I'm sending them. Even as I've been sent, I'm sending them. Even as I've been apostolically commissioned, right? We get it. The heavenly man left his family to cling to his bride. For a man will leave his family and cling to his bride, and the two will become one. There's this union with a people. For anyone who has given himself to the Lord, the two have become one in spirit. They are living in union. There's oneness. There's a divine oneness that we experience with Jesus. But Jesus is praying for a divine oneness that we would experience with one another. And he's interceding in John 17. And he's praying out loud so that everyone around can hear the burn in his heart. They can hear the fuel for his heart fire. And he's praying about this people. He says, don't take them out of the world. I'm sending them. I'm apostolically commissioning this people to be a sign and a wonder. Make them one. I've given them glory. The glory you've given to me, I've given it to them. So that even as you and I are one, okay, we'll just blow the expectations out of the water. The reference point for oneness is not some earthly, fleshly, mechanical, organizational, money-driven political narrative. The reference point for oneness is Jesus and the Father by the Spirit. We're going to blow the expectations so far above what any of us are ever, by our own mechanical, fleshly means, ever going to be able to produce. Okay, well, you've just raised the bar to an unattainable place. All right, you expect us to be one the same way that you and the Father are one by the Spirit. Oh, okay, great. He says, but I've given you glory for this. And he says, I have to have them. He understands the reward of his suffering. It's a people. His possession, his bride that he thinks is to die for, his inheritance, his blood bought. You've purchased a people for God with your own blood. He understands that this people means a lot. This people means a lot to Jesus. He says, if they ever become one the way that you and I are one, they are going to shake the world. He says, they are going to be an evidence of who it is that you are, who it is I say I am, and the fact that I have been sent into the world and that they belong to me. If they ever become one, then in their oneness, it is going to provide an evidence to the world that is going to be provoking towards one of two responses. They will not be able to refute the actual evidence because the evidence is irrefutable. If God gets this, and not if, meaning it's conditional, as if God is subject to something else. God is sovereign. God is all-powerful. God never makes a promise that he does not equally have the power to actually produce. It's how he can exalt his word above his own name because he understands everything that he says he means and whatever he means he is going to make good on and what's even better than that is that Jesus is asking for it and anything that Jesus asks his father for he gets and he says it's going to produce one of two responses right and, and it's beautiful because as he's praying for this people make them one even as you and I are one he mentions it three times in John 17 Make them one, even as you and I are one. 
He says, make them one, even as you and I are one. I've given them glory for this. He's like, and it's going to produce an evidence that is going to provoke a response. Right? And that first response mentioned, I believe it's verse 22 in John 17. That, that first response, it means to, like, to go all in, to anchor your faith into, to join the movement, to actually align your life with the evidence that's being revealed to you. It's, it's a choosing of allegiance. It's a changing of sides. Uh, it's a turning over of the tide in the place of the conversation that's happening or the debate that's been presented. That the contribution as evidence has provoked you to where you've leaned in the direction of what it is that is being revealed. Well, then in verse 23, he mentions again, make them one, even as you and I are one. But then he initiates, it's a different word there for the response that is going to be given. And this one means that even though the evidence is irrefutable, that there will be a hardening of the heart, even against the contribution of the facts or the evidence or the substance that is being revealed or presented, that even though it is valid, even even though it is true, the condition of the heart will be provoked to a hardening to not want to align with what it is that is being presented. And so Jesus understands that one of two responses hinges on the evidence that this people as a testimony are going to create throughout the nations because they're going to give a witness. And Acts 1 begins that journey. And Acts is beautiful because I would ask us to look at the book of Acts afresh this evening. There's much talk of rediscovering the ancient ways and the ancient days and the patterns and the blueprints and all of these things for, for ways of life and church planting and structures and systems and an ongoing effort to see God's desires established. And there's a lot of talk because we reference Acts as history. We look back upon Acts as a historical account and we want to glean from what it is that the history of Acts is able to provide to us. But I would suggest to you that Acts is not history alone that acts is history but that acts is also equally prophecy that acts is a prophetic description it is a prophetic blueprint it is a prophetic unveiling of the psalm 2 raging of the nations narrative that when the nations begin to rage, even as it was as Daniel presents to us a prophetic glimpse of God's people planted in the system of Babylon and him not just enduring but thriving through decades of faithful devotion, signs, wonders, miracles, angelic visitations, dreams, visions, mysteries, power, actual wisdom, influence, an integrous spirit, an excellent integrous uh, actual reputation that God is not going to abandon his people when the nations begin to rage and that the narrative of Psalm 2 gets unveiled as we begin to track through the book of Acts and I believe that the first 25% of Acts the first seven chapters actually gives us a beautiful insight into God's prescription to produce the product that he desires David says in Psalm 90, verse 12, teach us to number our days. Because I ultimately, at the end of my life, I want to bring you a heart 
that's full of wisdom. Let's just say this. We belong to Jesus. All right, if you've been born again, if you've seen him, regardless of the glimpse that you feel you have, you've seen enough to give him your life. Kingdom 101 is my life no longer belongs to me. Kingdom 101 is if any man would come, let him first deny himself. That's not something we're praying about, right? We're not, we're not praying about denying ourselves. We're not praying about, like, taking up the cross. Well, oh, bro, you know, I'm just, oh, man, it's such a hard season. I feel like God is asking me to deny myself in some ways. Like, can you believe it? Yes, actually. Like, uh, yeah. Yeah, actually. Praise God. Yes, I can. It's Kingdom 101. My life is no longer mine, which means I've forfeited all of my demands. All of my dreams have now gotten consumed in this beautiful man. He is everything to me. Now what matters to him matters to me. My life is no longer my own. I give you everything I have. You gave it all for me. I'm going to give it all for you. Whatever matters to you matters to me. Your values are my values. Let's get it on. That's where I'm at. And David says, teach me to number my days so I can bring you a heart of wisdom. And the reason that I make it a little comical is because it's easier to digest sometimes. I want to bring you a heart of wisdom. But because you belong to Jesus, that means what's wise, you're no longer looking to the world for that definition. The world no longer has that definition for you. Right? It's heartbreaking to me. Right? Sometimes we spend more time looking at business gurus as how to handle our finances than we do the scriptures. Right? We're looking more to Silicon Valley and all of these kinds of guys than we are to actually what Jesus said we should be doing with our money. Right? We're looking at celebrities and actors and the music industry to learn how to treat our spouse. <laughs> all right, we'll keep moving. Um, but David says, because I belong to you, I have to come to you to learn what wisdom is. I have to come to you to learn what wisdom is. You have to tell me what's best. You have to tell me what real wisdom looks like in real time as I begin to live my life. Because the definition of success no longer is found in these other pockets and places and compartments. My definition of success is in the smile of Jesus over the place of my obedience. That's all that matters to me. Whatever he says to do is what I joyfully and willingly want to do. And wherever that goes, it's where it's going to go. I delight to do your will. This is the anthem cry that comes off the life of sons and daughters. I delight to do your will. And David says, because I belong to you, I actually have to come to you. I have to learn how to actually get face to face with you so that you can tell me what real wisdom looks like. Because only you get to determine what successful living looks like. At least for me. Because as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. As for me and my house, I'm not trying to be like the rest of them. I'm trying to come out and be separate. I'm trying to be ye holy, even as he is holy. I'm trying to actually come out and join him and be one with him and represent him and be pleasing to him and minister to him. But in order to do those things, I actually have to come to him. And he has to speak to me to tell me, no, 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 that's not wisdom. This is wisdom. No, 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 you're, you're getting a little off here. Get back on track. No, 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 you're looking too much over this way. Look back to me. I'll show you the way. And this is what David is saying. I want to live a life that you say is wise, which means it doesn't matter to me 
the mocking of the world, the ridiculing of critics. It doesn't matter to me at times when the world says I'm failing as they rallied around Jesus on the day he was being nailed to the cross and they laughed at him and they mocked him and they said, oh, you thought you were God. Look at you, you're losing. There's going to be times when being faithful to God looks like losing to the world. Go and give it all away and then come back and follow me. Right? We would try to counsel the rich young ruler like this today. Hey, listen, bro. You've got a lot of resources. Like, if you ever just, like, give Jesus a little bit of your heart, man, like, like you would be amazing if you would join our cause. Like, if you would start coming to our church, bro, and, like, join our mission and vision. Like, like bro, you got a lot of money and a lot of real estate, and you know a lot of people, and we could leverage that for kingdom cause. <laughs> Ay, ay, ay. It's my issue with Kanye and Bieber fever and uh, all of these other things that, oh, he said Jesus. If we could just leverage his platform because, like, God needs him to be more cool or something. Like, I mean, have you lost your mind? Like, heaven shouts one name. And it's not Bieber and it's not Kanye and it's not, it's not none of this nonsense. And if somebody were to actually confront them and disciple them the right way. Like give it all away and then come back and follow Jesus, Jesus' way. Because there is a way and he's not going to cater a compromise to your desire. He's not trying to create some contract with you where you can keep what you want so long as he can use your resources for what he wants. This is nonsense. It's nonsense. And David says, I actually have to come to you to learn what faithful living looks like. Because the definition of success for my life belongs to you. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who applauds me. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter how many crowds are shouting my name, how many followers I've got, how much money I've raised. At the end of the day, if the smile of obedience is not over the investment of my life, then we're not living successfully. And David says, I have to come to you to know what real wisdom is. And this is what Acts actually reveals to us. Acts gives us the blueprint for real wisdom to produce the product that God desires. You could say it this way. His prescription produces his product. When we give our life to what he says is right, it produces what he says is right. What it is that he wants, he doesn't leave us out in the dark. Jesus was with them for 40 days, and he revealed to them the what. And I'm sure it was overwhelming. We know what it is that you want. We've heard you talk about it for these 40 days, and then for three plus years prior. Man, this is heavy. We're never going to be able to do it on our own. Like, we get it. There's an expectation. There's a standard. There's a plumb line. Like, you've bore your heart to us. You've let us into your desires. What are we going to do? And Jesus says, I understand exactly where you are, so I'm not only going to reveal to you the what, but I'm also going to provide to you the way. I'm sending power. Power is coming. There is an infusion from heaven that is on the way. Don't do anything. Go and wait. This is a hurry up and wait word. For any of you who have ever been in a hurry up and wait season. But it says they go and they tarry. 
And power comes, just like Jesus promised. And it shakes the room where they're gathered. I think it's amazing. God fills the room. And he also fills the people. And then they get thrust out into the streets. It's really awesome. We have this redemptive moment from the Tower of Babel and Genesis 11 and the demonic conspiring and the raging of the nations that we even have in Genesis 11 and an idea of the Psalm 2 end of the age scenario where the nations rally against the Lord and they build the tower because they want to come and find him and overthrow his loving leadership. And so we have this beautiful redemptive moment where rather than scrambling their language and scattering them, he unifies them according to a tongue and then it's beautifully revealed to those from the region. God is reestablishing his preeminence and his desires that his eternal purpose he's not lost track with, but that he is going to have everything that he said he wanted. And there's this chaos out in the streets Because, man, what God is doing doesn't always produce cheerleaders. You're not always going to have people that are super excited, right? Even on that day, there were some that were cheering. There were others that were criticizing, right? There were others that were mocking, and they were like, man, these fools are drunk. And all in the midst of it, Peter gets up, and he begins to release by the unction of the Spirit this heart-piercing, life-altering word where he magnifies the man Jesus, right? Apostolic preaching is centered on a man and not the focus or not the face of the franchise, right? Not the the preeminent one of the brand, right? Not the current revelant pop star icon preacher, but the man Jesus, the bridegroom king, the crucified God. And Peter begins to preach about this man Jesus and he lets him have it. You stiff neck, rebellious, like you crucified him. You nailed him to a tree. And he says, oh, but don't you worry. You will see him again. Right? Like this is back in my hood days growing up in high school. Like, oh, you're going to see me again. <laughs> like you might think you got the best of me today, but like, oh, you're going to see me again. And he says, you're going to see him again. Ready your hearts for when you're going to see him again. You have time to ready your heart before you see him again. Man, I'm telling you, if there's anyone sitting in the room right now and you're wavering on where you are with the Lord, you have time to ready your heart. Today is the day of salvation. For we are not ever promised another opportunity to say yes to Jesus. And he lets them have it on the day of Pentecost. Thousands and tens of thousands gathered around. And in Acts 2, verse 37, it says that their hearts were pierced and they responded and they said, what must we do? I can't just hear what I've heard and then keep living the way that I've been living. Man, have you ever heard such a word that it pierced your heart and you knew deep down on the inside that I've got to make some changes? This was a life-altering revelation. I can't just pretend that I didn't hear what I just heard. Now I'm accountable because God will always hold you accountable to the things that have been revealed. It's one of the dangerous things about showing up tonight. And it says, what must we do? 
Because the idea is if everything that you're saying is real, if it's true, by the Spirit, we are being shook and we bear witness. What must I do? I have to respond is the idea. I've got to respond. Whatever it takes, whatever the cost, I've got to do something to bring my life into alignment with what it is that has been revealed to me. And Peter says, great. Repent. Be baptized, be filled with the Holy Ghost. But what I want you to see is that whole period steamrolls right into the very next verses. Because we find that about 3,000 were added to the church. We find that God was doing something that was stunning, it was glorious. There was a demonstration of power. It was life-altering. People's lives and their desire for their own demands were shattered. Man, they gave themselves to the revelation of Jesus. They were born again. But what we steamroll right into is these verses that so often we compartmentalize as if they are a separate, as if they are a severed, as if it is a broken section from the rest of the text and what's being revealed. Starting in verse 42, it says, and then they, the they is the they that we've been talking about. It's this whole episode. It's those that responded to Peter's word. We've got to do something. I've got to give my life. I've got to turn over. I've got to surrender. I've got to lay down. I have to respond to what's being revealed. And then they continually, daily, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread together, and to prayer. The idea is those who respond right to the announcement of the gospel begin to live right according to the blueprint or the process that is best going to produce the product that God desires. That there is a way of life that best stewards a proper response to the gospel. That it is not up to us to determine what is the right wineskin. What is the right way to set our life up? What is God's actual wisdom that is going to help best facilitate or steward or be a demonstration for the power by his spirit that has been released in and upon my life? That if you have given your life to Jesus, if he has sent you power from heaven, there is a way of life that is going to be the best way for you to now steward what it is that God is doing in your life. And this is not super sexy, which is why it doesn't get a lot of hype. It's why it doesn't get a lot of fanfare, a lot of attention. The idea is God has laid down the blueprint for a way of life that is best going to ready the witnesses that he desires. And that is not an opinion. You can take that to the bank. And the reason that I say that is because the further journeying through the book of Acts provides us the observables and measurables. 
What I mean by that is you get to observe and you get to measure. Because again, you can call wisdom whatever you want to call wisdom, but what you also don't get to do is determine the consequences of what it is that you said was right or wise. Jesus said wisdom is known by her children, which means choices birth consequences. You can make your choices, but you don't get to determine your consequences. But when we actually set our life up by the choice of aligning with what it is that God says is wisdom, then we reap the harvest or we birth the consequences of what it is that God said was the right choices. Because what you don't get to do is set it up wrong and then demand what's right. You don't get to set it up any way that you want to and then expect God to make good on what he said would be the outcome or what would be the consequence or what would be delivered as the due process by the way of his way. You can't do it your way and then try to expect the benefits of his way in simple terms. And so if we want what he says, then we have to set it up the way that he says. And Acts gives us the observables and the measurables because this is true about your life in God. It is both observable and it is measurable. People get to watch you live. That's not a choice. You have to live your life in front of others. And so the way that you handle yourself is observable. And it's also measurable, which means the degree of transformation that is actually real in your life is measurable. We can actually conclude certain things about your transformation or lack of transformation by what we observe by watching you live. Spending time with you brings us to certain conclusions because you are observable and you are measurable. Your maturity in God is measurable. It's more than a hashtag. It's more than a t-shirt. It's more than a meme. It's more than some Bible app and thing that you share between friends. The actual character forged in your life is something that is measurable. It is something that we can actually look at and determine if it is real and then how real it actually is. And this is not an option. All of our lives are on display. It is observed by the world around us. It is observed even by us. And then it is measurable. And the beauty of the journey of the book of Acts is that it provides us the observables and the measurables. What I mean by that is we have in the very beginning, these people that responded to the gospel, this is the way of life they gave themselves to. This is what Acts is telling us. And the implications is that there is a right way to set your life up that is going to make the most sense when you've responded to the gospel the right way. You respond right, then you should set your life up right. And Acts 2 gives us the right way to set our life up. It says the apostles' teaching and fellowship. The teaching matters because our fellowship comes out of teaching. It's hard to enter into real fellowship with people that subscribe to different teaching. <laughs> so it's teaching and fellowship. And then it's house to house, 
It's meals together and prayer. But Mike, you don't get it. That's not fancy. It doesn't have to be fancy. Right? Man's always looking for strategies and new gimmicks and little tricks. And they're always trying to, like, coin something and copyright something and always trying to, like, figure out the freshest and the newest thing. And they're always trying to, like, reinvent the way. And reason being, because man can't take credit for the idea of family. It's God's idea. You don't get to leverage it at your next church planting conference. You don't get to take credit for it. God takes credit for the idea of family because he in himself is a divine family. He is a divine community. He is family. And so what best represents him in the earth is what most looks like him, which is family. And so the church is a family. And it's not an event. The church is not something that happens. It's something that is. The 90-minute, two-hour slot on Sunday is not what the church is. The church is not something you attend whenever it's going on and it's going to go on whether I'm there or not. The church is something before the church ever hosts something. And the church is not to be defined even by the things that it hosts. We learned that in 2020 when many lost their bearings. They forfeited their purpose because they couldn't host their events anymore. And without their events, because they had defined themselves as an event, because they had relegated the definition of who and what they are and the sole purpose of what they were supposed to demonstrate to being a hosting of an event center, I figure if I smile a little bit, it makes it easier. It's like, why are you smiling? Do you hear what you're saying? It's like, the church is a family. The church is not an event, and the church is not to be defined even by the church events. It's a family. And Acts gives us the overview of a family that God possessed. And then it gives us the observables and the measurables. As you begin to track, because this is what Acts is trying to communicate, and if we don't see it clearly, then we lose our bearings with the prophetic urgency of what Acts is longing to accomplish. Acts is telling us that if you give yourself to a certain way of life, that it is going to ready you to be the witness that God desires. Because again, you can set it up how you want, but if we're not reaching the desired outcomes that God wants, then after a period of time, which is what Acts gives us, a period of time and the evaluation of what a certain way of life actually produces, there has to come a point in our walk where we are mature enough to evaluate the results of our life in God where it's no longer all of this careless, oh, well, there's grace for all of my mess-ups and my lack of maturity and all of that. Some of us have been in God for 40 years and we're in the second grade because we've refused. There's been a wrestling for our way and there's been an establishing as a way of life to have it the way that we want it. And the way that we want it might not necessarily be producing the results or the outcomes that God desires. But Acts gives us the evaluation. It gives us a time period. And what is actually produced in a people when they give themselves to the way of life that God prescribes. 
And this is undeniable as we journey through the book of Acts. And in whatever way it is confronting, we must let it confront us with an urgency to reclaim the divine blueprint for a way of building in order to produce the witnesses that God burns for. Because he longs to have a people that would be a living demonstration of his power and his desires. A people who are not in love with the world or with themselves. And the journey begins in chapter 3. I'd like for us to take note that in Acts 2.47 we have the word continually. And you're going to notice it as a theme as we track through 3, 4, 5, 6, and even 7. In chapter 3, it says that Peter and John were going to the temple at the hour of prayer. There's the idea that there's a way of life. And there are certain ingredients or components about this way of life that they are unwilling to come off of because they understand that it's the ingredients of the way of life that God has called them to that is actually performing in them the agenda that the Spirit has and accomplishing through them the divine desires that God is on fire to see. And they're going to the temple at the hour of prayer. And they're there, and there's a lame man. And here you have two witnesses that are out in the streets, and they're confronting the world and the world's conversation. Silver and gold have we none, but such as we do have. When you don't have anything else, you give away a lot of silver and gold. (laughs) When you don't have anything else, you give the world what it's demanding. You enter into their conversation and you try to meet their terms with the resources that they think they require. But they understand that they don't want to be a part of the world's conversation. That the gospel has created a whole new conversation. And such as I do have, this is what we have to offer. And these are witnesses that are out in the streets. Man, they're hitting the street corners. They're bringing the gospel into culture. They're out there. Lights, camera, action. Middle of the day, crowds, corners. And they're actually bringing real power to where people are broken. And this man gets up. And rather than it creating a frenzy in a positive way, it says that a tide of negativity begins to swing in their direction. And it says that the local authorities snatch them up and bring them in and place them on trial. They are on trial because of what God is doing in their life. They are on trial because of the evidence of power that is flowing through their life. They are on trial because they are unwilling to bow from the pressure of the moments because of the power that is in them and on them. And they are longing to be a channel or a broker of power into a broken world. And they are on trial. And while they are on trial, they are not bowing from the pressure. They are not succumbing to the tyranny of government and leadership. They're not turning away from even the religious structures of their day. But in the moment when they should choose self-preservation. Right? Because self-preservation always sounds like wisdom when we're really afraid. (laughs) Like when you're really afraid. Self-preservation always sounds like the voice of wisdom. Whatever's in your best interest to preserve you always sounds like the voice of wisdom when you're really afraid. But rather than 
bowing. They let him have it. They preach the gospel. They give him Jesus. And it says that they get beaten and put in jail. Yo, this is crazy. Rather than choosing that this is not an opportune time to be that guy. Like, hey, bro, we get it. Like, you're on fire. Like, you're cool. Like, everybody knows. Like, you're that guy. Like, it's all right, bro. Like, listen, man, in this moment, like, just, just play it safe. Like, we need you out here. Like, nothing bad can happen. Like, I'm sure this is what they said to John the Baptist, too. <laughs> like, in the moment when it would seem to matter most. Like, we get it, bro. Like, you're the guy that's always given those wild and aggressive prophetic words. But, hey, listen, bro, in this moment, like, Herod's not playing games. Like, we need you to be the happy prophet, right? Like, we need you to tell him that Jesus loves him and he's got an amazing plan for his life. Like, this is what we need you to do. Like, I, I get it. Like, if you've got something else rumbling on the inside, like, bro, God is really with you. Like, he's using you. Like, we got a good thing going on out here. We're trying to build a profile and establish a platform. Like, you've got years of ministry. Like, the world needs your voice, bro. Like, play it safe. Rather than playing it safe, they let him have it. And they end up beaten and thrown in jail. And this concludes chapter 3. And in chapter 4, we find that when they are released, what does it say? They get out of jail and run to a prayer meeting. They get out of jail and run to a prayer meeting. Right? How many of you, when you get out of jail, you're running straight to a prayer meeting? Right? Some of you feel tricked. You're like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> they get out of jail and they run straight to a prayer meeting. Because the idea of what it's trying to communicate is that there's a way of life that is consistent. There's a people that are giving themselves to the Lord in a peculiar and in a particular way. They understand what God wants and they will not come off of it. They're not trying to do something different. They don't care about being irrelevant. They're not trying to be trendy and bend and bow with all the cultural fads and the ups and downs and the current of culture. They know exactly what it is that God has asked them to do and who it is that God has asked them to be. And Peter and John know it. And so they know because they know it. They know where they are going to be. And they get out of jail and they run to a prayer meeting. And when they get to the prayer meeting, knowing that they've just gotten out of jail, knowing that they're being persecuted because of what it is that God is doing in their life, knowing that there's nowhere to hide anymore, that they can no longer play it safe, this would be the great time to get together and be like, guys, it's time to call an audible. Like, it's getting real in these streets. Like, man, like, there's real consequence. But this is not how they're praying. As a matter of fact, Acts 4 tells us that they bring up Psalm 2. And that they say, Lord, if these are the days when the nations are raging, then give us grace. Touch us and give us more boldness. We're not trying to hide. We're not trying to cower. I'm not trying to bow. Legal systems and government systems and systems in general. It doesn't matter to me who's for us or against us. It doesn't matter to me if they like us, if they're favorable to us. It doesn't matter if my guy's in office or if he's not. 
Lord, if you would touch us and give us more boldness, we'll go right back out there. We'll keep preaching. If you would extend your hand to heal in the name of your son, Jesus, then we'll go right back out where it seems to be the heaviest, where it seems to be the darkest, where everything is raging. Lord, we're not trying to hide. And it says that their prayer meeting, the building where they're gathered, starts to shake. And that God fills them afresh with boldness and with the Holy Ghost. And at the end of chapter 4, we have the introduction of Barnabas, who is a Levite from Cyprus. I love the details in the text. He's a Levite. And you have a Levite bringing a property that he has sold. We understand Numbers 18, 20. You won't have a material inheritance like the rest of the tribes. I'll be everything to you. I'll be your portion. Everyone else might have real estate and they might lay claim to material things, but I'll be your everything. We understand this peculiar people with peculiar access to stand before him, to behold him and to minister to him and to bless in his name day and night, night and day and then to represent him out of beholding him. And Barnabas is introduced as a Levite, and interestingly enough, it's a coincidence, I guess. He's coming and he's bringing, I don't believe in coincidence for anyone that might not understand that was a joke. And he's bringing the proceeds from a property that he sold. Take the world, but give me Jesus. I'm going to leverage my whole life against his reward at the end of the age. I'm going to set up everything that I have to give by way of effort and investment in a confidence that he is good and that when he comes, his reward will come with him. And then you have into chapter 5. People start dying in church. Because they lack authenticity. Woo! Baby! Oh, it's going to get real up in here. If people started dropping dead because of a lack of authenticity, I promise you there might be a little more energy in our worship gatherings. Oh, I promise you there might be a little more hunger whenever we get together. All that casual contempt stuff. Like, I don't really care. You didn't sing my song. I don't like that scripture. You didn't pray that I wanted to pray. I don't like your voice. I don't really like your t-shirt. How dare you wear Jordans on the worship team? Right? Like, like, like all of the nonsense. I promise you if people started dropping dead in church meetings, it'd be a whole different ball game around here. And they're dropping dead, not because they have a problem with Peter. But because Peter has discernment and recognizing they have a problem with God. Right? We need to get over all of this confrontation with church leadership. Right? It's your fault and you don't like me and you don't appreciate me and you this and you that. Their issue is not with church leadership. This is not an Ananias and Sapphira and Peter problem. This is an Ananias, Sapphira, Holy Ghost problem. And Peter has insight. He has unction. He has discernment. He recognizes what's really going on. And they actually drop dead. And they carry him out. 
And it says that awe and wonder grips the whole church. If people started dying, I promise you, it might inspire a little more awe in the fear of the Lord. But not only did it create awe and wonder in a community, then may we be a people of awe and wonder. And may it not actually take people dropping dead in order to provoke us to greater awe and wonder. But not only did it provoke awe and wonder in a community, but it says that the whole city was afraid of them and didn't want anything to do with them. They were careful in the way that they approached them. They were cautious in their dealings with them because they understood God has possessed them. And it's not a game. God is really with them. God is in the midst of them. His power is being unveiled. The life of God is being demonstrated in a community. This is a people that have more than just language. They have God abiding. There's a habitation where God is dwelling in the midst of his people and his desires are actually being fulfilled. And the rest of the city actually got gripped with fear and didn't know what to do with them and didn't even want to approach them. And then it says the leaders got mad again because Peter and John and the rest of the apostles are out in the streets and they're preaching and things are getting wild and people are getting healed and people are coming filled with demons and possessed by demonic spirits and they're being set free and it gets the attention of the government and the religious leaders. And they come looking for them. And they grab them and put them back in jail. And now they're sitting in jail. Again, because of what God is doing with them. Who's ready to start going to jail because of great demonstrations of power? Who's going to be on the sign-up list for those that are going to be persecuted in a real way and in a great way? Because the unveiling of God to a people, to a city, is going to create hostility in government structures and local authorities and religious sects that are going to come after us and try to chase us down and try to persecute us and try to jail us. Oh, nobody's excited? Nobody's on the sign-up list? And they're sitting in jail again. But now there's an angelic visitation. And it rattles the whole jail cell. And it shakes everything that can be shaken. And it looses the chains of injustice. And it looses the bonds of wickedness. And it says that they are released from the prison. But what does the angel tell them when they're being set free? He says, go right back in to downtown. Stand right back out there in the city square. And keep on giving it to them. Keep preaching the whole counsel of this life in God and his wisdom. And it says they go right back out there and they start giving it to him again. And now the leadership is perplexed and they rally together and they don't have any idea what they're actually going to do with these guys. What do we do? Like we don't even know what to do with them. We've tried to beat them. 
We've tried to jail them. We've tried to persecute them. We've tried to find them and stop them and shut them down. We've tried to prevent them from doing what it is that they long to do, but they just won't stop. And Gamaliel says, we actually have to be careful, guys, lest we find ourselves actually bucking up against and fighting and resisting what it is that God is doing. And this brings us into chapter 6, which is an interesting observation. 15 verses cut into two equal sections. Not really equal, 8 and 7. But it's the introduction of a man named Stephen. And Stephen is introduced as a man who is being ordained to the food pantry. The church is exploding. Many believe there's a witness of 20,000 at this point. 20,000 plus. 20,000 plus. And the apostles have to get away from the tables to give themselves to the ministry of prayer and the word. And they say to whoever they're talking to, you guys go and find us seven guys that are full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. Man, you've got to be full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom to serve in the food pantry. That's because Jesus has higher standards than we do. <laughs> you've got to be full of the Holy Ghost and God's wisdom. And there has to be a corporate witness. It can't be your own self-appraisal. There's got to be a people that bear witness and amen that that's actually who you are. The crucible of real life and life done together as family has to bring a people to the point where they are willing to amen what it is that is on your life. And they say, you go and find us seven guys who meet this criteria. They've got to be full of God's wisdom. They've got to be full of God's spirit. And Stephen is one of these guys. What's interesting about Stephen is that he is being ordained to the food pantry. This is his introduction. This is his glorious introduction into the narrative of Acts. Food pantry. But what we need to understand is that Acts is moving quickly as we're flipping the chapters, as we're turning the pages. Stephen is ordained to the food pantry, verses 1 through 7. In verse 8 through 15, we find that Stephen is out on the streets. And he is walking in a wisdom that is irrefutable. He has power. He has glory. He has signs. He has wonders. He is a living demonstration. There is a community that bears witness and rallies alongside that Stephen is the real deal. That he's not faking it till he can make it. He's not an imposter. He has real substance. He's been through the crucible. He's been developed. There's actual integrity and authenticity according to what God is doing in him. And Stephen is out in the streets and it says that they snatch him up. But by this point... We have to understand where Stephen has been. Many believe that Stephen would have been in the crowd on the day of Pentecost. That he would have come from the region and gotten saved and responded rightly to the gospel. And that this time period, as we've tracked from Acts 2, and those who responded right to Stephen being snatched up in the streets by local authorities, many believe that it's a period of 8 to 10 years. 
eight to ten years, and there's nothing to be heard or seen of Stephen. And all of a sudden, Stephen rises, and he rises, and he's visible. And while he's visible, there's evidence that's coming off of his life. Stephen is not an overnight success. Stephen is not a flash in the pan. Stephen is not some hot name for six months on Facebook, and now you're trying to find out, well, what happened to that guy? Stephen has been through the crucible of the process of a way of life that is actually going to produce a product that God desires. For eight to ten years, Stephen has done nothing except give himself to a way of life. No lights, camera action. Nothing super fancy. Nothing that other people would consider to be attractive. Stephen's given himself to teaching. He's given himself to fellowship. He's given himself to house to house. He's given himself to meals with people and to times in prayer as a way of life. He's given himself to a family and a way of life that God has given to a family that he is developing to be the witnesses that he desires. And Stephen has just fully baptized himself into an ongoing way of life, trusting that if he gives himself to a way of life that God has laid down as his prescription, that God is going to produce in him whatever it is that God desires. And he knows that because this is what God says he wants, that eventually in him it is going to harvest what it is that he knows God wants and Stephen has done nothing except give himself to faithful time in a family not so that not as a means to an end not to leverage his heart to serve against the ministry opportunities that he really desires because his heart is filled with vain things. He just wants to be seen doing right with the right language. Stephen is authentic. Because when he's put on trial, they bring an indictment against him. They put him on trial and they put an indictment against him. Because Stephen is a problem. He's a problem. And they know that he's a problem. But the idea is not that Stephen is the one that's on trial. Stephen is not the one that's on trial as he's standing before religious leaders. Stephen is actually not the one where the real indictment is being laid. You see, Stephen is putting an entire religious system on trial. Because the reason that Stephen is a problem is because in hundreds or thousands of years, their system has never been able to produce a man like Stephen. <laughs> their way of life that they've called wisdom has never brought them to the place where a product has been produced out of what they said was the best way to set it all up. You see, there has to come a point where we evaluate what's actually being produced by what we say is the best way to set it all up. There has to come a point where we stop laying the blame on the people when we've encouraged them into a certain process. If the process is not producing the person that we know that God desires, we have to take the accusation off the person because there is a system that only produces greater accusation. And that system says, well, you don't attend enough. You don't give enough. You don't care enough. 
But after a while, there's only so much attending and giving that I can do when the system is set up wrong. When the system is set up wrong, it's going to produce a consequence or product that is off or wrong. And Stephen is not the one that is on trial. Stephen is actually the one that is putting an entire religious system on trial. And the indictment is being leveraged against a system that has never been able to produce or birth as a consequence of its own process. A man that is like Stephen. And he stands there with his face on fire. That's Acts 6.15. His face is glowing. He's radiant. Because those who look to him, they will be radiant. And he will never disappoint them. Moses met with God on the mountain. And he came back down after 40 days of being face to face with God. And his face was glowing and the people were afraid of him. But they had to tell him that his face was glowing. You see, sometimes when we just give ourselves to his presence, stuff starts happening to us. Things begin to accelerate to a degree where other people around us have to start informing us of the things that they see in us or on us or happening to us. Because a person given over to his presence isn't necessarily trying to come down from the mount with a face glow anointing. You're not trying to have face glow meetings and take the show on the road. All you care about is him. And Stephen stands there and his face is on fire. You can't fake what's on your face. When your eye is single, your whole body will be filled with light. You can't fake what's on your face. Make the Lord, make his face to shine upon you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And Stephen is standing there and his face is on fire. And in a moment when he should be thinking about leveraging what God is doing in his life towards a future of ministry success. Because God is really with him. But God is looking for witnesses. And there's a type of witness that God is looking for. And Stephen is about to give it. You see, because too many times we create determiners for maturity that Jesus didn't use as his own scale. We come up with all of these different definitions and measurements for maturity that Jesus just didn't use. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is still the pathway. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are those who understand their, their spiritual poverty, their brokenness. Blessed are those who when persecuted for righteousness' sake will receive it with all joy. That's the eighth one mentioned in Matthew 5 because the idea is if you live the first seven, persecution is inevitable as the response. <laughs> so if we're not being persecuted, are we really living the pathway the right way? And Stephen is about to give a witness and it says that as he's standing there, face on fire, he starts to give it to him. And he starts to preach about the beauty of this man and his coming again. 
And it says that they get super aggressive because they don't want to hear it. And they cover their ears and they start to grit their teeth. And it says that they chase him to the outskirts of town. And it says that as they're on the outskirts of town, hostile, super aggressive, that they're about to stone him to death. And rather than Stephen seeking to run, live to fight another day. God's going to use you, bro, and now's just not your moment. There's way more ministry for you. It says that Stephen is present, and he's standing his ground. And while they begin to charge him, it says that Stephen begins to weep. And as they pick up their rocks because they're about to stone him to death, it says that Stephen begins to intercede. And it says he lifts his head. For I lift my head towards the hills, where forth my help comes from. And it says that like Ezekiel in chapter 1, he has this heavens open, this Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1, raptured type experience. And he sees into the heavens and he sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. And Jesus is standing almost as I would for one of my sons if they were at some sort of event. Standing in agreement with their contribution to say, that's my boy. And it says that Stephen is standing with this clear vision of Jesus and his smile over the place of his obedience. And it says that as they begin charging him, angry, raging, again, when the nations begin to rage, raging, it says that Stephen stands and he weeps and he intercedes. And he says, Father, don't hold this against them. He's praying. He's interceding. He's weeping and he's interceding. What's happening in his heart is coming out of his face. The real transformative power that has been at work in him has actually done something to him to make him something that you just can't fake whenever the right set of circumstances applies the right unique amount of pressure in order to bring us to a revealing of what's real on the inside of us. Because I promise you, God knows how to set life up to pressure us to reveal what's actually real on the inside of us. And in a moment where life is pressing him, in a moment when the nations are raging, in a moment when the government is not in his favor, in a moment when there's tyrannical systems and structures on a local level that are seeking after him, in a moment when they're about to bring an end to his life because of his way of life and the product that's actually the consequence of his way of life, he's standing there and he's weeping and he's interceding. And they stone him to death. Let, let me just, let, let, let's bring it really home and make it super real. If you don't, have actual transformation that's happened on the inside of you, you have zero chance at being able to weep over your enemies and intercede for your executioners. 
There's got to be something that has happened on the inside of us. There's got to be the administration of real power in that day when the Holy Ghost comes upon you. The Holy Ghost is not just to sing and dance. The Holy Ghost is not just to shout or speak in tongues. The Holy Ghost is not just to roll around up underneath the chairs. The Holy Ghost is not just to make you well-known or to advance your own agenda. The Holy Ghost should be producing on the inside of you a character that is otherworldly, that gives a witness to the power and the love of Jesus, that when it's pressed, something that looks like Jesus actually comes out because of what's happening on the inside of you. And when Jesus was pressed, when he was nailed, when he was tortured and left for dead, what came out of him was weeping and intercession. Man, and if God is going to do something in a people to possess them, that when the nations begin to rage, a faithful family, a company, an on-fire tribe can be trusted to give a witness that actually looks like him, that is going to be so difficult to deal with that it cracks the calloused heart. Because what happens? You have Saul standing there over his life in celebration and agreement. But when you flip two pages, you find a man that was so troubled by the witness that was given. You find a man that was so challenged by the evidence that came off of Stephen's life. You find a man that was so damaged according to his own desires because of the contribution that was given, that laid down and died at his feet, that rather than succumbing or bowing to the system, Stephen chose to weep and intercede and lose his own life in hopes that it would crack the cold and calloused hearts of those that are leading the rebellious way. Rather than conquering the system of the rebels, God is looking to conquer the rebel in your heart. And it is going to take a Stephen-esque witness in order to crack the calloused hearts when the nations begin to rage. And may God give grace to the faithful ones trusted in those days of difficulty. Man, we don't know persecution here. Man, your idea of persecution is the comment section in Facebook, right? Like, like this is nonsense. There are faithful, beautiful, powerful saints all around the world that right now are being chased down. They're being jailed. They're being beaten. They're being tortured. They're being set on fire in public arenas. They're being executed publicly for the testimony of Jesus and the evidence that comes off of their life. There are people that are losing their own heads because of the love that they have that they are unwilling to come off of. And we're arguing on Facebook. But Stephen is evidence of the type of witness that's possible when we set it upright. Peter and John are evidence to the type of witness that is possible when we set it upright. A people that actually know God, a people that are mature, 
a people that have given themselves to a way of life together as a faithful family, a company, a tribe, God in the midst, possessed with his power, walking in his glory, signs and wonders as an accompaniment. There's a real testimony. There's a demonstration in a city that is awe-inspiring and establishing the fear of the Lord. There is a people that are giving a contribution. There's a people in a legal term that are providing to a case that is being established. When the examination is happening and it's thorough and it's deep, there's an authentic revealing of God's love and power and desires. And Acts is telling us, When you do it God's way, you get the product that God desires. And there must come a point in our life where we examine how we've set things up and what's actually being produced by the way that we said was the best way to set things up. (laughs) There has to come an evaluation. Because if we're not seeing the evidence of what Acts is saying is accessible, then the problem is not with God. The problem is not with God. He has done everything possible to pave the way to have what it is that he desires. We have to evaluate. We have to inspect. And then we must respond. I'm believing that the Lord tonight, by his own desire, there's a divine desire. God is after witnesses. That by his own desire, wants to pour out his spirit and wants to mark our lives in a fresh way so that we can give ourselves to a way of life together. So that we can give ourselves to a divine blueprint, to a prescription, to what it is that he says is the best pathway or process to develop the witnesses or the product that he desires. It's no longer up to us. We have to be all in on a way of life that he says is best. Well, Mike, you don't get it. I'm too introverted for that. I don't need other people in my life. I can do it all by myself. You might be able to do some things by yourself, but there's a revealing of God that you'll never be able to access all by yourself. It requires a people. It requires a fullness, a maturity of this man, of this church. And I believe that God wants to pour out his spirit tonight to give us grace, to give ourselves to a way of life that is going to better ready us to be the witness that he desires for us to be. That when unique pressures and consequences begin to abound, that we won't bow to the pressure of culture, that we won't bow to local authorities and systems and structures, that we won't bow to the government and their desires, that we won't bow to political narratives or financial incentives, that we won't bow to influence and platform and power and prestige and notoriety, but that we'll be a faithful company gone through the crucible of real life together and that God will have done something in us that is of real substance that will ready us to be faithful in the days that are before us because God is looking for witnesses and he wants us to be a witness in every sphere of society. He wants us to be a witness in every possible place where people can be found.
He wants us to be a witness so that we can provide evidence or a testimony to all peoples because it must happen before the end actually comes. And so tonight, I am inviting you to join the movement. Not some new movement, not some new hashtag, not some new sway thing in culture. I'm asking you to get in the game of kingdom life. I'm asking you to get fully baptized into a family and a way of life together. Teaching, fellowship, house to house, meals together, times in prayer, house of prayer, ongoing intercession through the surrendering of our lives to God and what he says is best together so that we together can be readied as a family to give a witness in our city. Because it matters to God. And it should matter to us. And so be it if the day would actually come upon us and the pressure or the crucible of life brings us to the moment where we offer our life, where we could weep over our enemies. Some of y'all got a hard enough time praying for other people in the church that you don't like. Much less enemies, right? Like, Oh, you can love people that are lovable? Praise God for you. Even the Gentiles can do that. Right? Like even the pagans can do that. But you can love those that don't deserve it. You can weep over those that are broken and don't know it. You can share tears for rebels, enemies, those who are filled with rage and are hostile towards God and his ways and all that love him. You can intercede for executioners. Man, you must have power. You must have real power that's working in you. Because if intercession is not bringing you beyond the boundary of your own preference, then it's not being fueled by God's power. <laughs> intercession, when it's real, has to bring you beyond the boundary of your own preference. When you've got real power at work in you, it aligns you with God's heart. And you start to pray things that sound like him. You start to live in a way that looks like him. And when you weep, you weep for those that he weeps for. Teach us to pray. Stephen is praying. We want to pray like Stephen. We want to pray like Jesus. And so I'm going to ask for God to touch our hearts tonight and to give us grace that he would conquer the rebel in our hearts, where we would surrender to him and his way in the way that he's inviting us to. Stand up with me if you would. Lord, I know that you're longing to give a witness to this city. And too many times, we want to take the world's ways. We want to abide by the world's terms. 
We want to be what the world wants to be and we just want to do it with a Jesus t-shirt on. But Lord, we're asking you to do something in our hearts tonight as a people to where we would be broken from a love of the world, the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, the pride of life, all of the desire and the vain ambition that's alive on the inside of us to be powerful, but powerful according to what the world says is powerful, powerful according to what the world appreciates and applauds. Lord, we need you to do something in us. We need your spirit at work in us. We would receive power in that day when the Holy Ghost actually comes upon us. And that power would be power to produce our lives into a witness. It would be something that looks like you. Lord, do something in our hearts tonight. Do something in our hearts tonight, Lord. Do something in our hearts tonight, Lord. Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to sweep over the room. Sweep over the room. And right now, touch every heart. Touch every heart, Lord. You're longing to give a witness to this city. You're longing to provide an evidence to this city. You're longing, Lord, your heart is on fire to make a contribution through a people. that would be provoking, that would be a catalyst in this city. Lord, do it here. Do it through these people. Do it in these hearts and through these lives. Lord, establish something here that would give you glory the way that you long to be glorified. Lord, establish something here that would give off the witness that you long to see given in this hour of history. Do something here within these hearts, within the lives of these people. Lord, raise them up to be powerful. Raise them up to be evidence. Raise them up, Lord, we pray. Lord, I'm asking you for the first time, possibly in some of our hearts, we would surrender our own way, our demand to have it our way. Lord, if there's a rebel that's alive on the inside of us, we pray, give us grace to lay it down. Give us grace for the rebel, that one that's hostile on the inside to finally be joyfully conquered. Lord, we want to be known as a people that have been joyfully conquered. Come on, if your difficulty, 
in the place of prayer has been your wrestling with God over things that you want your way, things that you feel you can't live without, and all of these demands that you continue to lay down every time you come to the Lord. I'm asking you tonight to let the Holy Ghost touch your heart where you would see deeply into the face of Jesus and see him as the pearl of great price, see him as the great reward, see him as your inheritance and your great possession. Lord, eight to ten years of Stephen just giving himself in faithfulness to a way of life, no demand for immediate success, results. I'm asking you, Lord, give us grace for obscurity. Give us grace for hiddenness. Give us grace for private devotion. Give us grace to relinquish all of our public demands. Give us grace to lay down our life, to be faithful in family. Lord, do something in us. The life of Elijah. Go show yourself. Go hide yourself. Some of us need to be faithful in a season to go and hide. Some of us need to be faithful in a season to receive grace to go low. Grace to go hide. Grace to get off the radar. Grace to stop trying to shine a bright light on ourselves. Grace to stop trying to make it and leverage the ladder. Grace to stop trying to jockey for position. Grace to stop trying to fight for notoriety. Grace to go low. Grace to go hide. Grace for obscurity and brokenness and hiddenness. Grace for the private place. Grace for the secret place. Like Ravenhill said, some of us are always faithful to the public prayer meeting. But we miss the private meetings with God. We turn away. We make excuses and create exemptions from the secret place. But because we want to be seen and known, we show up in public forums. We long for visibility. Grace to give ourselves to God in a faithful way, in private, to begin digging wells and creating history.
praying that God would crack something open deep on the inside of us. That it would penetrate deep, 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 deep. Crack something open on the inside, Lord. Deep, deep, deep. Come on, let's keep praying in the Spirit. Come on, it's got to be real. It's got to be real. not looking for some emotional buzz some fix that's going to wear off after two or three days where we begin to crave another event Lord deposit your power deep 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 on the inside and let it crack open a well and everything that has resisted your agenda in my heart, let it be conquered. Tonight I'm giving myself to Jesus. By his grace, I want to be joyfully conquered. Come on, let's keep praying in the spirit. Even if it's softly. There's a rumble of intercession. Come on, you don't even have to stay where you are. Whatever your response. Come on, we're going to tarry for a few moments. just settle in to what's happening right now we're not waiting for the next thing we're not waiting for something beyond this come on just settle in Crack it wide open, God. Crack it wide open, God. 
crack it wide open, God. A well of affection reserved for you. Fresh season of tears. <laughs> A fresh season of tears. A fresh season of tears. Gripped by the Spirit. Tears of intercession. Bearing the burden of the heart of the Lord in a fresh way. Grace to linger a little longer. Could you not tarry with me? Could you not linger with me? I'm looking for someone to bear my heart to. I'm looking for someone to let in. I'm troubled. Would you join me in my travail? Oh, no, 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 no.
Come on, the Lord is releasing grace for tears. We prayed it in the beginning. Watchmen who would weep. Watchmen who would intercede out of brokenness. Out of longing and burdening and groaning. Not out of our self-inflated arrogance and our own agendas. Not intercessors who criticize. But watchmen who weep. Watchmen on the wall who would wail. Watchmen on the wall who would weep over enemies and intercede even for executioners. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Don't hold it against them. But let this witness crack their calloused hearts. of tears on the inside that's reserved for your burden Lord crack the reservoir of tears let it well up like a wellspring from within like a wellspring from within crack it wide open crack it wide open Lord I really feel this. If you've been struggling with surrender to the Lord, just begin to offer Him up your heart together in this moment. Come on, it doesn't have to be some public thing. We, we, everybody doesn't have to know. But if you've been struggling with surrender to the Lord, in whatever way that you know the dealings of God have continued to knock upon the doorfront of your heart, let Him who knocks Hey, though I stand at the door and I knock, let me in. Let him in. Let him in. If you've been struggling with surrender, offer him your heart. Offer him your heart. I need help here to put down my way, to joyfully give myself to you. There's grace to give yourself to Jesus. Come on, in whatever area the struggle. Just release your heart to him in a fresh way. Lord, help me here. Give me grace. 
I pray release tears here. Tears in the secret place. Tears in public gatherings. Tears out in a cultural cross-section. Tears in the grocery store. Tears on school campuses. Tears at the gas station. Tears standing in my front yard looking at my neighbor's house. Release tears. A Jeremiah type anointing on this house to stand at the gates, to weep and to wail and to cry out. Return to the well. You've created cisterns for yourselves, but they're empty. They have holes in them. A Stephen-type witness. Yeah, come on, we're going to take the next couple of moments and just let the Spirit do what, what is happening in the room. 